warm welcome on behalf of the congregation of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, Kingston, and in the name of Jesus Christ. The asparagus are being enjoyed, the strawberries are ripening, the waters of Lake Ontario, they sparkle, the frontline workers, they continue their service. Extra space is being opened up along the streets downtown for us to wander. But whatever our circumstance or season, we have breath and we have blood, and we have the blessing of knowing that our lives are held by a God great and good, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I invite you now to begin this new week with me in praise of God, commencing with a metrical psalm with a tune from the Genevan Psalter of the year 1551. Sir John A. MacDonald looked back over the preceding decades and he remembered how at the London Conference of 1866 it was feared that the working title of the new country, the Kingdom of Canada, might, might uh, wound the sensibilities of the Yankees. And so there was some discussion about alternatives. And at the suggestion of Sir Samuel Leonard Tilley, New Brunswick statesman and a father of confederation. Kingdom was replaced with dominion. Why? Because he'd been reading Psalm 72. And he shall have dominion from sea to sea. We'll now read this psalm, one that originally honored the king of Israel, the 
embodiment of the people and reminded that king that he was dependent upon doing God's work for his authority, and God's work being delivering the needy when they cry and the poor in their suffering. This is a psalm that continued to be used long after ancient Israel no longer had a king. God is king. God's rule is celebrated. It's a psalm that we use now looking to Christ and his ministry and his dominion. Let us read responsively Psalm 72. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May the mountains yield prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. For he delivers the needy when they call. He has pity on the weak and the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May his glory fill the whole earth. Amen and amen.
after his baptism and that voice from above that was heard to declare, this is my son, my beloved, and after the time of testing and strengthening in the wilderness and after his calling of his first disciples, Matthew records that Jesus turns to share the good news of the kingdom of God with his people. The very first words of this Sermon on the Mount are words of blessing. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this glorious day. We thank you for the word that you bring to us and for the teachings by your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you and pray. This morning's readings are from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, the Beatitudes. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and, and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen.
Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be found now acceptable in your sight, O Lord, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. These weeks of summer, with certain travel restrictions still in place, I've been thinking about certain places to which I have journeyed in the past and how they have shaped my understanding of Christian faith and life. After Marburg, Germany and ancient sites along the coast of North Africa, we now come to a week in which we will be celebrating Canada Day. And I thought it only appropriate to wander in memory closer to home. John Rostin Saul has dedicated much of his life to exploring the character of our nation, and he finds it grounded in its beginning, a nation brought together from two nations, one French and one English. The book that has made the most impression upon me is one entitled Reflections of a Siamese Twin. From the beginning, he says, there was a, a mutual respect enshrined in constitutional guarantees that ensured this nation would not be a monolith ruled from a center, like France is ruled from Paris or the United States is ruled from Washington, but rather would be a nation that would incorporate debate and compromise like Siamese twins who are joined together for life, for better or for worse, who acknowledge that the common good is more important, is greater than the individual good. In the same way is Canada, founded upon a union of French and English nations that may be awkward and challenging at times, but also gives a particular sensitivity and characteristics that are life-giving and life-sustaining. Today, of course, we acknowledge with regret that that original basis of union did not include the indigenous peoples of this land. And more and more, we are working to incorporate formally their presence, their contributions, and this will only expand the dynamics of consultation of consensus, of community. So this week I think back. I think back to travels in this land to the east. One year, while our family was quite young, Bea's sister and husband and their three children joined the five of us for a tour of camping in Quebec. It included some time along the Saguenay Fjord with a stop at Tadoussac at the confluence of the Ford and the mighty St. Lawrence. And some years later, we spent time as a family in a wintry Quebec City. It was to celebrate a particular December birthday and it included a traditional, wonderful Quebecois dinner out. So what do these places 
have in common? How do they relate to my Christian faith and life? Well, these communities, Tadoussac and Quebec City, had its first Europeans. They were of Huguenot faith. The Huguenots were French Protestants, followers of Jean Calvin. Like him, they had advocated for a reform of the church, but had had to flee France in the 16th century. Many found refuge in the Swiss city-state of Geneva, and there they were joined by others from across Europe. The Reformed faith was there consolidated under the preaching and teaching of John Calvin, and eventually many of them were able to return to their homelands, to the Netherlands and to Hungary, to Scotland, and yes, to France, bringing with them this new approach to Christian faith and to being the church. It was a new approach that aimed to shed centuries of accumulated human traditions and ecclesiastical distortions. Its aim was to return to the original church, the church of the New Testament. Leadership in this church was to be provided by individuals elected by the people themselves, not only by those appointed by others. And these leaders that they would elect were called elders or presbyters from the Greek, presbyteros. Worship was not only to be in the language of the people, but was to be the, the work and joy of the people, not entrusted to professional clergy and choirs. This was a way in which each individual had a responsibility, as the Apostle Paul would write, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, based upon a direct personal relationship with the Holy One through prayer and the reading of Scripture. But it was also marked by a great commitment to the church, to being a Christian community. For though fragile and often failing, the church had been ordained by God for our growth and faith. And oft they quoted Cyprian, that great Christian leader of the third century of North Africa, you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother. This was a way which, on one hand, emphasized the sovereignty of God, who operated unconstrained by any human preconception or authority, but on the other hand, also emphasized the grace of this God, as seen in creation and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To which, to whom, our only response can be one of gratitude, gratitude to God and service of neighbor. It is estimated that in the 16th century, perhaps 10% of the population of France was Huguenot. And their influence, however, far exceeded their numbers mainly because of their education and their employment. The same determination that had them study the scriptures for themselves led them into lives intellectual, political, and entrepreneurial. They were merchant adventurers, they were officers in the armed forces, they were skilled craftspeople. But it was all rather radical for the era, 
challenging social and political as well as religious norms of the time. And the Huguenots suffered terrible persecution in between seasons of calm. The Huguenots provide a fascinating and often forgotten part of our history as Canadians, particularly in the story of La Nouvelle France. The first voyage of European discovery by Jacques Cartier in the year 1534 was undertaken at the initiative of a Huguenot, Philippe de Chabot, governor of Burgundy and of Normandy, an admiral of France and a king's friend. The first settlement of Europeans was at Cap Rouge, now a suburb of Quebec City in the year 1540, organized by the Sieur de Robeval, a Huguenot. It lasted only three years, but when another group of settlers arrived there, it was at the direction of Pierre Dugras, Sieur de Mont, a Huguenot again, who commissioned one born to Huguenot parents and baptized in a Huguenot church and married a Huguenot woman, Samuel de Champlain. For a time, after Henry IV proclaimed the Edict of Nantes in the year 1598, Huguenots were promised freedom to exercise their faith in 20 designated cities of France, and Huguenot merchants were able to take up again their travels and their trade. Pierre Chauvin, a native of Dieppe, governor of Honfleur, and a Huguenot, was the one granted a monopoly on the fur trade on condition that he build a house and a trading post in New France, which he did, a permanent trading post at Tadoussac in the year 1600. Though it is interesting to note, many of the settlers that he sent over included Roman Catholics, but he sent only Protestant ministers. So it was between the year 1534 and 1627 all settlements of New France were led by Huguenot, all but one, the one led by the Roman Catholic de la Roche that landed on Sable Island off the coast of Nova Scotia. But then in the year 1627, under Cardinal Richelieu, it became illegal to be Huguenot in New France, and the Reformed tradition returned only with the Scottish Presbyterian soldiers who remained and settled in and around Quebec City almost a century and a half later, in 1760. But as I think of my travels, I do thank God for these pioneers of the faith and of this nation. As I think of them, I think of the cross by which they were known, and by which they're known to this day in the L'Église Réformée de France, the Huguenot Cross, beautiful and symbolic. You'll see the cross itself is made up of four equal arms. It's said that this is an emphasis upon the sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules over the four corners of this world. It's also said that they represent the four Gospels, each of which points in a different way to Jesus Christ and brings him nearer so that we can even identify his presence with us now, working the kingdom of God in our midst. You'll see the, the four points 
the eight points on the four um, arms of the cross, the eight points representing the eight Beatitudes. An incredible reminder all who saw this cross and wore this cross that the ways of this world are not the ways of the Holy One. That the kingdom of God is revealed in Jesus Christ has come and already things are not as they seem. It is the humble ones who ultimately are lifted up. It is those who mourn who find comfort. It is the meek who rule and it is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness who are satisfied. It is the peacemakers who are embraced. And you will see that these blessings, these blessings are not an opiate encouraging passivity, but quite the opposite. They are a challenge, a challenge to proceed through life in the way of Jesus Christ, whatever this world throws at us, with the assurance that God will hold us and not let us go. These Beatitudes, they promise neither success nor security, but they do promise life and blessing from the one who is before, during, and beyond it all. These Beatitudes pointed to on this cross, all the more moving when you think about this cross first emerging, first being seen around the year 1560, during years of persecution of the Huguenots, persecution that would culminate in the St. Bartholomew's Massacre in Paris in the year 1572. They remembered in those years, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You'll see between each of the arms of the cross, fleur de lis. Yes, the flower is a symbol of France, but it's also a traditional symbol of purity. And at the base of each fleur de lis, there's the shape of a heart, a heart that is meant to conjure up that great verse from the Gospel according to Matthew. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus replies, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. A heart was at the center of John Calvin's personal crest. And we hear the emotion and devotion of his prayer that will soon be sung. I greet thee who my sure redeemer art, my only trust and savior of my heart. And then finally, at the base, the dove flying, the Holy Spirit. During times of persecution, the Huguenots depended upon the Holy Spirit to guide the church for long and often were they without ministers. It's the Holy Spirit that opens us up as Christians to prayer and, and brings the words of Scripture upon a page to become the living Word of God. It's the Holy Spirit that draws us together to become the living body of the living Lord. It's the Holy Spirit that nudges and pulls us into ways of forgiveness and compassion and that strengthens us for witness of the gospel, to live with truth and for justice. And so as I think back 
to that camping trip to Tadoussac and that winter weekend in Quebec City. I think of those Huguenots who laid the foundations of New France and, and yet did not have the opportunity to build on them. Elmore Riemann, Canadian historian, wrote, if it hadn't been for the business enterprise of the Huguenots in France and their desire to found a colony where they could remain loyal to the King of France and yet also enjoy freedom of worship. It is doubtful there would be many French in Canada today and I would add, it is doubtful there would be a Canada as we know it today. So here in Kingston, thinking back to those travels of Tadoussac and Quebec City and over the Huguenot contributions to this nation, I ask myself now, what are we willing to leave behind? And what new endeavors are we willing to commit ourselves to? Even though they didn't have the opportunity to build upon them, they laid the origins of New France, those Huguenots. Well, what foundations are we laying for the generations to come? And they took seriously their understanding of the Holy One, and they were committed to the way of life that they saw revealed in Jesus Christ, even unto persecution. And I ask, what is our loyalty to the faith? Thanks be to God. Amen. I invite you now to lift up with me our prayers, 
are prayers of thanksgiving, of supplication, and of intercession. Let us pray. O Lord, you are from eternity unto eternity. You are not at one time in one place because all times and all places are in you. Before you, we now gather at the beginning of this new week. We seek to understand our lives and our destiny. Here we present ourselves, O God, before you, fragile in spirit and in body. Individuals seemingly insignificant on the surface of this spinning planet, in a universe still extending. But before you, O God, we are reminded that you have made us in your own likeness, that you have breathed into us your own Holy Spirit, so that within these mundane days you have planted immortality. And now from our little rooms and this short hour, we lift up our minds and our hearts beyond time and space to you, O God. And we pray, hear us as we approach your throne of grace and lay before you our thanksgivings and our concerns for ourselves and for others. O God, hear us as we lift up our prayers for this nation, our home away from home. We thank you, O God, for the, the deep seas and the wide fields that feed us, for the massive forests and the metropolitan cities that delight us. We thank you, O God, that Canada was not built by railways or canals or telecommunications, but by women and men. And we thank you for the traditions that have made us the people we are, of government that is accountable, of social programs that ensure the common good. And we pray, O God, save us from the twin evils of a corrupted nationhood, from the evil of arrogance that boasts of its own abilities and resources and neglects other peoples, that ridicules what is different but is blind to our own failings. Save us also, Lord, from the opposite evil, the evil of neglecting the country that nurtures us, the cynicism that ignores the past and is pessimistic of the future, the refusal to accept that we belong to one another and must be committed in our care for each other, that diversity is a gift and that life together involves compromise and sensitivity and sacrifice. O God, we pray, bless this land. Reward the work of minds and hands with prosperity, but only inasmuch as we are willing to become a blessing unto others. Bless those who govern us. May they accept the trust that we place in their hands, May they know that we, the people, have delegated to them neither our conscience nor our freedom, and that we are accountable to you before and beyond all. We pray strengthen our resolve to build what is good in your sight for all your people. So hear us, O God, now as we 
lay before you the concerns of our families, our nation, and our world in this time of silence. Hear us, O God, as we pray. Holy One, we come to you as your people, united in Jesus Christ and by your Spirit. And so we pray in the week ahead, speak to us, lead us, and keep us in the way of Christ, he who is our sure Redeemer. In his name we pray, and in his words we continue. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace. Amen. Thank you.